Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the new podcast, Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Fans of the show can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Google, and iTunes. Also, follow us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. Today's episode is, I'm, I'm very excited for it. We will be covering two films that are beloved by myself and so many horror fans as two of the finest cinematic Lovecraft adaptations, Reanimator and From Beyond. Uh, most importantly, we have a very special guest, producer and director Brian Usna. So I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes on genre film with bylines in Nightmare on Film Street and Shudders the Bite. And I've co-edited books on monster media, alien philosophy, stranger things in philosophy, uh, as well as having written chapters on a bunch of horror topics. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce today's uh, excellent guests. Uh, Brian Usna is well known among horror and film fans as the producer for a number of Stuart Gordon classics, including Reanimator and From Beyond, as well as being an accomplished director in his own right for work such as the Reanimator sequels and Society, uh, among many others. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Michael Vaughn is the author of The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema. He also runs the website The Video Attic, where you can find reviews and exclusive interviews, uh, thevideoattic.blogspot.com. Well, welcome back, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. So great to chat movies with you again. And Andrew Fleming Dunn, you might know him as Dark Crow on Twitter and Twitch, is a co-host of the film podcast, The Rotating Chair, uh, Twitch streamer. Thank you so much for coming back, oh, Andrew. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so we're going to be talking uh, everything awesome Lovecraftian adaptations, basically. And first on that list is uh, Chronologically Reanimator, uh, a movie that... I have seen innumerable times. So good, such a classic. And uh, one of the only zombie films I'd really actually even consider doing for this show. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give a brief introduction uh, to the film and then open it up to you know, general impressions and then just uh, give you the floor, Brian, and love to, to pick your brain about different aspects and all sorts of things. So Reanimator, based on the Lovecraft serial novelette Herbert West Reanimator, was directed by Stuart Gordon, uh, produced by Brian Usna, and stars Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West, medical student who has invented a what they call a reagent that can reanimate deceased bodies. He and his classmate Dan Kane, Bruce, uh, played by Bruce Abbott, begin to test the serum on dead human bodies and conflict with Dr. Carl Hill, played by David Gale, who becomes a major factor in the, the film series and is also infatuated with uh, Kane's fiance, played by Barbara Crampton. The, the conflict hinges around Hill wanting to claim the invention as his own and 
it uh, gives him power that nobody should have as the source of the horror. Just a little backstory on Lovecraft. Lovecraft as a, his work as a whole, H.P. Lovecraft was one of the originators and most prominent early adopters of the horror subgenre we call cosmic horror. Or recent, recently you also see a, a weird fiction, a term that he used being used a lot. Um, other early important cosmic horror writers include Robert Chambers, uh, Arthur Mackin, but Lovecraft developed such a wide range of mythos and mythology that Lovecraftian horror is used effectively interchangeably with the subgenre. Cosmic horror stories often involve tales of protagonists discovering secrets about the nature of the universe and or have experiences that are so beyond the pale, so alien and incomprehensible and terrifying that it threatens their sanity and sometimes can threaten you know, the, the earth or the nature of reality itself. Uh, and uh, cosmic horror tales are really, a, I, I love them as a horror subgenre because they often upend humanity's conception of the scheme of the universe and the, the order of nature in exciting ways. And Reanimator, just one quick fact before we move forward, is, is actually based on the aforementioned story and, and so is its direct sequel. But it's interestingly enough, the first Lovecraft, first Lovecraft story to mention the infamous fictional Miskatonic University, which is a staple in the subgenre, the story is among the first depictions of zombies as a scientifically reanimated corpse. So it's, it's kind of an interesting historical note too. I, I think first I'd, I'd love to just open it up to, to our guests about their, their general impressions of, of Reanimator. Um, maybe starting with you, Michael. Uh, yeah, it's such a fantastic film. Um, you know, discovered it early in my VHS running days. And um, yeah, it's what I think what kind of hits you is not only does it have amazing direction and a great story, but just it has that wonderful dark humor, that dark uh, sardonic kind of dry humor, um, which... I think is, you know, great in the first film and, you know, carries over perfectly to the sequel. Um, and then you have some uh, terrific performances. So, I mean, uh, across the board, it's it's a really, it's a pretty classic film. Absolutely. Um, what about you, Andrew? I fell in love with it with the tagline. Herbert West has a very good head on his shoulders and another one on in, in a dish on his desk. It just... I saw that with just the cover art with uh, Jeffrey Combs. He has the reagent. There's something coming up behind him. And Thanks. I was probably way too young to watch Reanimator when I first saw Reanimator because it was during the VHS days. And um, it kind of set me on a path I wasn't ready for. <laughs> and I, it's one I've been, I've been gladly on, you know, up until now, cinematically. It's, it's yeah, it, it's it's one of my... It's one of my very favorite of the era. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more strongly. Um, it's interesting because, I, I mean, I love, in terms of zombie films, I, I, I love the Romeros. But other than that, it's not uh, a very exciting subgenre for me. With One of the few exceptions is Reanimator because it's so rich and well executed and the performances are so good and there's so much style to it. It's... Uh, Every single time I watch it is just as fun as the last time I watched it, and it doesn't get old. Um, 
So uh, I, I think first, thank you for 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 bringing that and and the sequels uh, to such a high level of quality, Brian. I, I genuinely love them, and it's it's a treat to have you on. I, I wanted to to first start off by asking how you got started in filmmaking uh, in general, and and uh, and also how you how your collaboration with Stuart Gordon started. Well, I had never. Um... Going, going into movie making was um, kind of something I didn't think about until I was, I guess, pushing 30. Um, I was had done a lot of other different things, and I'd made a little bit of money. I ended up with a Bolex 16-millimeter camera in the late 70s when the TV studios were dumping all their Bolex news cameras mm -hmm. and getting video cameras so these things were just being dumped on the market they were they would hold a hundred feet of film and they they were hand winders there was no battery they had three three um lenses on them and i was i was in into art i painted i had an art supply store i i did a photography darkroom stuff and so I first started shoot using the 16 millimeter camera and sh shooting with it and then printing it and rolling it. And I kind of really got carried away with the whole thing. It's not that I hadn't um, fooled around with eight millimeter cameras when I was a kid. I had, but it just wasn't anything that, um, you know, I never at that time, uh, believe it or not, everybody all young people aspired to write the great American novel. <laughs> Today, they all want to direct the next Star Wars movie. Um, the, um, so it wasn't a common thing. There wasn't many film schools. And, um, you know, I grew up when I went to college, it was all about the new wave, the Fellini and, you know, all the, all the, the art films of the sixties, which, you know, was were the hottest things in town. Um, so, you know, I when I started shooting with that Bullock, I lived in the country. I had a whole bunch of goats, lived on a big piece of land. <laughs> and I would shoot my goats, you know. And then I'd watch that black and white photography and it just looked like Bergman to me. <laughs> it was it was just of course I was projecting it on a wall. And um but anyway, so I really got into it and I had some money and I thought, well, I'm going to try to make a movie. So I went and got a bunch of books and, and then I put an ad in the paper to, in the shopper paper asking for somebody who knew how to make movies. And a guy who had gone to, had graduated from the university. I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, had, um, he said, well, he could, you know, he, he had just gone through the, Back then, they would, didn't even have a film department. It would be the the um, radio, TV, and motion picture department. <laughs> radio first. And um, so he he sort of showed me how to how to um, organize a production, and I wrote this um, wrote a little short film script, and we shot it, and I and I really got swept up in the in the and the whole, the whole, you know, kind of the, the method of how do you make a movie, just the work of it, just the, 
process. And it was just a lot of fun. And I did make a short film and I didn't know it was just terrible until I actually showed it to somebody. And then instead of, so then I thought, well, since that's so bad, instead of trying something new, I just said, I'll just, I'll develop it into a feature. So I just started shooting and cutting and shooting, writing, shooting, cutting, writing, shooting, cutting until we sort of had a feature. And by that time I had, I had, um, started reading, I started reading Variety, um, the weekly version and, and box office magazine. And I started getting into the business of it. And I thinking that, man, maybe it's, um, gosh, maybe you could make, if you could make a living doing this, that would be pretty cool. But I needed to, um, and I, I realized that I needed more professional <laughs> elements in it. So I, at that time, I had actually optioned a some a comic books from Kim Dice. I, I love underground comic books, and so I was going to do these a movie based on his comics. And I was looking for a director, so I put a little like three inch ad in in Weekly Variety saying horror movie director wanted. <laughs> and this is back before they we even had fax machines. This is prefax machines. I got hundreds of letters from LA and New York. And so then I started meeting people. And <laughs> I went out to LA and a guy that I met there um, um, through Kim Deitch, his girlfriend, Sally Crookshank, who was a fantastic animator if you've ever seen um sally crookshank's um short animations they're fantastic and i ended up meeting a guy named bob greenberg who kind of took me around la and showed me you know took me to the studios and took me to sets movie sets and i started getting the feel for what um you know what it was like in la if you were a young person wanting to make movies in the independent scene, I knew nothing about, you know, the studios or anything. And Bob had told me I should meet Stuart Gordon in Chicago, who had, who was the creative director of the theater there. And um, in the November of 1983, I went out there over the Christmas break and um, met Stuart. Saw a couple of his plays. We we just got on really well from the get go. He already had had a script for a pilot based on the reanimator stories for a TV mm-hmm. show. And, um, and I said, wow, I love that idea. If you, <clears throat> if you want to develop it into a feature, I don't want to do TV. Um, I'm game. I'll, I'll, I'll option it. And so that's what we did. And actually within a year to the weekend, we, you know, a year later, we started shooting Reanimator. It's so interesting to me too, because, uh, so you obviously had your, your mindset on directing horror. Was, was Lovecraft, uh, an influence for you at all? Or, or what were your, what was your inspiration there? Well, I honestly, I didn't have, I didn't even know what a director did when I had got that camera. 
and I remember asking my friend that answered the ad, um, I said, well, I know the director says action. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know that. <laughs> I, I've seen day for night. And But what does the producer do? And he said, well, the producer's the boss and he makes the most money. And I thought, well, that's what I want to be. <laughs> I've always wanted to be the boss and I've always wanted to make the most money. It just seemed natural. Um, and But as I started doing it, I started realizing that, you know, the director was the guy who, you know, got to just call the shot. Mm. And so that was, but I knew that I had no, no, um, you know, I, I had no training or anything. I've never taken a film class. I've never, you know, I just don't have it. I, and I was never, I started as a producer. So the only way I learned anything about making movies was by hiring people and watching them work. Wow. And so that's a bit, I, I think it's a lot it's different from, from the vast majority of people who end up making movies. Usually you work your way up, you're a PA or you write something or you, you know, you want to be a director. Everybody really wants to be a director. But like I said, back in that era, outside of LA and New York, maybe, nobody knew anything about it. I mean, just, it just, you couldn't, you know, I would have, I would have stayed. Um, I was living in New North Carolina at the time. I had no great ambition to leave there. But I knew I couldn't do what I wanted to do there because the people like me were in L.A. They were in Hollywood. And so it wasn't that I was. I think anybody who works in the movies, if you've, if you've ever been on a movie set for any length of time, or especially if you've worked, because a movie set is an, an incredible, boring place to be if you don't have a job there. It's just awful. It's mind numbing. Um, if you, but if you do work in a movie set, you sit around and you watch, and everybody, I think, at one point or another, thinks, "I'll direct. I can do as good as that guy." You know, I mean, so many of the decisions of directing is are arbitrary. They're not, you know, it's not a, you know, and and it's you. Everybody does what you say. It's a, it's a good feeling. Of course, there's a tremendous amount sure. of stress involved in it but i think it wasn't that i wanted to direct i wanted to make movies and i didn't really see the difference between directing and producing or if it was just my movie i was making getting the movie made but i did um eventually of course um also want to try my hand at directing like most people do if they have a chance I, I, the problem of course with me was like I said, I just never learned how to do any of this stuff mm -hmm. and uh, never had a mentor, never had anybody, you know, you know, I think the best thing you can do is go, you know, indenture yourself to somebody who's doing what you want to do. But by the time I made a movie, I was already in my early 30s and I wasn't any, you know, I, I wasn't going to, nobody was going to take me in hand and and I wouldn't have wanted them to. I've never been good at uh, working for other people because I just didn't, just had hardly ever done it. So, so that was, um, it wasn't that I was driven to direct, but I was driven to make movies when I saw it as a 
as just a great process. Um, Lovecraft was not a writer that I that I cared for. Um, I was a, I was a horror fan from the time I was very young, and actually I'm old enough that I used to get EC comics, <laughs> you know, horror comics. Awesome. Um, I um, you know it it was um, I loved ghost stories. I grew up in, in the third world. I grew up in Latin America. So I didn't even have TV when I was in grammar school until I was like four or five years old. And it, it's really, you know, it's a tropical third world country, developing country and full of myths and, <laughs> and um, stories and ghost stories and and I read ghost stories. I went to any horror movie I could see. I um, so I was really into I was into that, and and I was a big reader. And when I read when I was in high school, I read you know I read Bram Stoker's Dracula. I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I read you know you know Psycho. I read. Edgar Allan Poe. I read anything that had to do with that kind of, of, um, of kind of scary or fantastical stuff. And I, when I read um, um, Bram Stoker, I immediately loved it as a teenager. I just, especially the um, Jonathan Harkin's Journal, I think is just really my kind of a horror story. The um, Frankenstein was just terrible. I, it was just, just the worst, right? Um, almost unreadable. And um, so very disappointing. Of course, Poe was good. Poe was always mm -hmm. great. Um, but um, when I read Lovecraft, it was kind of like, I mean, he's very, it, it's very not, the thing about Lovecraft is he's very not visual. He's really about the words. Mm -hmm. And and he's always talking around something. And by the time anything happens, the guy's fainted, <laughs> you know. And so that was kind of, for me, I kind of, you know, that didn't, it wasn't that uh, impressive to me. Now, if I had read, the Lovecraft short stories, the six of them, I might have had a, a different opinion because the Lovecraft, I mean the Lovecraft, the reanimator stories, the reanimator stories are very un-Lovecraftian, mm -hmm. um, except for ha taking place in his standard, um, you know, towns and that he's invented. They, it, has, it has nothing to do with, um, it's just like the monkey's paw or something, you know, it's just, you know, bringing back, uh, it's, it's a Frankenstein story. Um, and it's, so I probably would have, I probably would have really liked that, honestly. But this, when I would, the things that I read, I loved his name. I remember in the seventies, there was a rock and roll band called Lovecraft. Um, I know, knew later that, um, that, um, you know, the Poe series, um, of Pit and the Pendulum and all those. Actually, um, the, the one of them, the Haunted Palace, was actually a Lovecraft story. Mm -hmm. 
but it was considered, Lovecraft wasn't considered saleable like Poe was. So it wasn't that I, I wasn't a Poe uh, Lovecraft fan, uh, but when I, you know, the the story that Stuart wanted to do, um, the reanimator and and their script, Dennis Paoli and Bill Norris and, and Stuart, I read the script, it was very short. It, it was, uh, it was, I guess it was for a half hour pilot, but it was, um, it ended like when Halsey dies. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you can see that's sort of the first act almost of Reanimator, but it was a, um, it didn't have Dr. Hill either. So we had to make it into a feature. And when I read the stories, of course, then I, I was really into it because I had had that guy carrying his head around. And I've always been oh, wow. a fan of talking head movies, you know, the brain that wouldn't die. And, you know, any movie where somebody's <laughs> like House on Haunted Hill carrying the head around. Um, I like the, I just, that's horror in a way. It's very basic horror. And, um, and so I, so I said, well, we got to get this, uh, you know, the guy carrying his head around. Of course, in the stories, he's actually a pilot and they're in World War One. And, um, and the head is actually his, <laughs> he crashes West and Dan are there taking advantage of all the, um, the, the, the plethora of, of, um, kind of subjects that they can have on the battlefield. And, and West has developed this goop in a bubbling cauldron with the serum and that from which almost anything can grow and live. And um, I called it the goop in, in um, Bride of Reanimator. Um, but the, you know, the pilot like crashes its plane and just, you know, coincidentally his head is severed in the crash. And it flies into the bucket, the cauldron, you know. So <laughs> that would be a great scene to show. <laughs> but and so that's why his head could live in the in the movie, the first movie. We didn't go there. We decided that it was just it, needed, it just had to be simple, and it was just that there was the serum, and the serum could bring back body parts. In the book, that wouldn't have been the case. The serum would have only brought back a, a, you know, kind of a, a, um, the whole body, um, fresh. Mm-hmm. But in, mm-hmm. uh, but then um, about chapter three or four, when Dr. When Hill comes in, um, they have the goop made from a, a, um, some kind of reptile in South America and mixed with the re- re- reagent. And from there, that's when West could, really get into that great horror stuff of just kind of bringing back body parts, combining them in grotesque ways. And, and that was, um, so that's where I went with it in the second one. I decided to kind of try to use that stuff, that um, macabre kind of, I called it doodling with body parts. <laughs> the, um, but anyway, that was the, the, you know, that's how the script evolved. And of course, then it needed, and then that's when, um, Dr. Hill then became the villain. First movie, it was just the father and, mm-hmm. you know, it was Meg and Dan. And of course, Dan is not, Dan 
is the character created by the writers to be the narrator in the stories. There's an unnamed narrator who's Wes' kind of cohort. Mm -hmm. So that was how it all sort of evolved. And of course, after making Reanimator, I, I started, I just read everything Lovecraftian and found all the stuff that was public domain that you could actually use. And, um, and became quite, you know, I became quite a fan, of course, then, because I, I, I got to know all of his stuff, and I always read it with the, with the aim yeah. of how can we, how can you adapt this to a movie, which are good ones. It's, it, it is, because of your, your reticence towards uh, Lovecraft, you know, as you said, like, by the time something's happened, our, our character has fainted and our point of view is left. Was that kind of the idea of, of, of bringing, let's say, the, the more uh, ultra-violent aspects of uh, your adaptations? Like Reanimator and Brighter Reanimator, um, they're fantastically over the top and they're kind of the antithesis of, of Lovecraft's typical um, MO, if you will. Was that kind of the idea? Was he wouldn't show you, so we will? Um, no, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I would say that mm -hmm. the... For me, doing Reanimator, producing Reanimator, that was, for me, it was an opportunity to make a movie. It was an opportunity yeah. to make a real movie like the movies I saw when I was a kid. You know, I think, I think the, I, I loved the, I was just at the right age to see the original Corman um, Poe movies. And I love mm -hmm. those movies, you know, they were and, and a lot of stuff on Reanimator, like the credit sequence is straight. It's, you know, you don't have to have a credit sequence and you definitely don't have to pay a lot of money to do an animated one, especially on the on the budget. This one. I love that sequence. But for me, it was based on what Corman did with the post stuff. He would just pour paint. You know, a bunch of colors, but for some <laughs> reason it looked real gory to me. And any gore stuff was always kind of thrilling, especially when I first saw it when the, the original Hammer movies came out and they started mixing sex mm. and blood and had real blood and it was red. And, and it was, you know, that was there was something very thrilling about it. And I think the, the, you know, I, I do like, um, I do like suspense and and you know kind of thrillers, uh, you know the you know mm -hmm. the kind of feeling of suspense. You know, somebody's going to jump out and grab you. But I, for me, horror um, generally has an element of of fluids of viscera. It's 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 mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be blood. It can be goop or it can be you know it could be. But it's, <laughs> it has to have that stuff, which I think um, it, it the the horror feeling I get when I watch a, a horror movie like that is there's sort of a almost a, a skin crawling feeling, almost a nausea, the physical reaction that is that um, you know that reaction to gore. Um, and I've always been, and uh, I from I mean I'm not. I don't know, you know, where Stewart's, you know, where what his influences are because he always had a sense of humor with the stuff he did, and I always liked, yes, I always liked 
irony and satire. And I think it's because I grew up with Mad Magazine and Mad, and actually the horror mm-hmm. comics were always funny. You know, they were grisly. Yes. It was always brain eating and, and, you know, unfaithful wives eating their husbands or, you know, them coming back to life. It was always, but they were, they were always written with a real tongue in cheek. You know, they were really ironic. And I think there's something of, you know, that's very entertaining. It doesn't mean a movie has mm-hmm. to be like that for me. I mean, it's not like, hey, Psycho yeah. is not ironic. Nor is, I think Texas Chainsaw has that irony. Oh, absolutely, um, it does. There's certain types of things that are, you know, it doesn't mean it has to be that way. But I know I like it. And I like um, the over-the-top stuff. I always like to see the monster. I'm, I yes. was never one of those people who, who, who um, it was like, gee, if you just don't see the monster, it's better because you can imagine something worse. And I know that's true. But I always liked to see the monster, and I hated all the movies that I saw in the 50s and 60s where you would wait the whole darn movie mm. just to see the face <laughs> of the monster at the end. You go, okay. You know, I like the transformation scene. That, that to me, is part of the fun of horror. Stewart was someone who liked the shock, and he liked, he wanted to shock people, and he, because, you know, he grew up as a um, kind of always being sort of in the theater in high school, he was in a theatrical group. Um, So he was always going in that direction. As a matter of fact, I saw when he, you know, in one of his, um, you know, memorials, memoriams um, last year, his younger brother um, told an anecdote about a, um, a report card Stuart got in grammar school. So when he was in grammar school, the report card sent back to his mother on the comments by the teacher. They said, Stuart is very good at directing the other children on the playground. <laughs> 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 so you think, wow, I guess this guy was destined to be a director. Unlike me, who just sort of directed movies because it seemed like a good idea, you know, and um, he just seemed like he was born to be a director. And when he went to college, um, the story I heard was that he, you know, he couldn't get into the film department, which was very small back then. So he went into theater. So he started directing theaters, yeah. uh, theater, theatrical plays. And I think that's where he really learned how to deal with actors and to tell stories. Because with theater, you don't have, you don't have all that, all those toys to use. You can't, you don't have all these like close-ups and zooms and, and tracking shots and, you know, montages. And there's all these things you can do to tell the story. You know, you always read of, of, um, Hitchcock or especially one of my favorites, Fritz Lang, um, who, would direct the actors. They would almost put a grid on the floor in chalk, you know, and they'd move them like they want the actors to move like um, chess pieces for the camera. Because, you know, the cameras were not very um, mobile back then. Mm -hmm. So they would really design the shots. And I feel like, um, especially 
Fritz Lang didn't have much rapport at all with actors. It's probably obvious from his movies, which I love. But um, so I think with cinema, people who go right, and I think Hitchcock started as an art director, so he was very much about. He used to say, at least in the autobiographies I've read, that once you design the set, you pretty much um, you've pretty much laid out what the blocking is for the scene, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, in the most extreme example, if your set is a hallway, you kind of know where the camera's going to go and what the action's going to be, you know? And um, so I think that that's coming into it from a, I mean, I certainly would never say Hitchcock wasn't a good um, director of actors. From what I understand, he was actually a very, good torture of actors. Yes. The, uh, but Stewart came into it a different way, as some few um, directors do, not that many. But he he directed um, theater. And on theater, which I've never done anything with theater, but I really admire the fact that, you know, you they had you just a small stage and a minimum of props and lights and and you can tell a story to the audience that they'll be totally involved in. And Stuart liked to, he did all kinds of genres. He did everything, but he also had a taste for horror and he, um, and he liked the shot. So I think is the first time he really, uh, if you want to kind of do a psycho analysis, kind of a career psycho <laughs> analysis, um, you know, of Stuart, uh, in a, uh, a very, uh, um, you know, cornball way. Um, it is that the, his big event in, in, in college was he put on a, this is in the, this is in the late sixties. So this was the time of all the upheaval and the marches on Washington, the generation, you know, gap, the, you know, it was just a time of upheaval. And he did a play, he did put on a, a version of Peter Pan where the whole cast was naked. <laughs> and so he was, he was, he was arrested for that <laughs> and had to get bailed out of jail. So I've, I've, I've seen the, the little newspaper clip of that. And I think that was something he was incredibly proud of. I think the, 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 the feeling of, um, that kind of attention, you know, that kind of of um, effect, having that kind of a big effect, was I think that really, I think that really was um, an important step for him, and it was being shocking because, you know, I mean, it's okay put a bunch of naked people on the stage in a <laughs> movie about children, and maybe it is shocking. The um, <laughs> The, so I think that that was, so I think he did like to shock audiences and, and he, and he loved Hitchcock and Hitchcock liked to shock people, you know. Um, so I think that in horror, it was natural for him to want to, to, um, be shocking. When we first met and talked about when we were developing the script, I had, I was also, I also really, I love all kinds of movies. I love everything. Um, if they're good, except for horror, I like the bad horror movies. 
the um, the um, the what I, I was also developing a comedy at that time. And when it came time to because I pre, I risked everything I had on making the animator. I borrowed money to make it. Um, and so if it had if I couldn't get my money back, I would have been in big trouble. And I already had two kids and a wife. And so I um, I thought, well, horror. I feel like I comedy isn't funny, I think you're screwed. There's nothing, no hope. If horror isn't, if the movie isn't any good, I don't know. I'm a horror fan and I watch, I like watching bad horror movies too. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be good. And so I think the horror fans are much more, much more dedicated. And, and I, I feel like I, I understand horror better. And plus I felt like, well, if I'm only going to get to make one movie in my life i certainly want it to be a horror movie and um and i also noticed that what really killed cheap independent horror movies is when they tried to be respectable that was the one thing you could hardly forgive is when they just didn't want to accept the genre they were in and so when we first talked mm -hmm. about the anime i told Stuart, i said man this has to have sex and blood man we got to go as far as we can go because that's <laughs> that's my money up there. You know that's that's <laughs> it. So let's not screw around. We're not we're not um, we're not being respectable here. Of course, the irony of the whole thing was that because Stewart was such an accomplished director, even though it was his first movie. I don't think anybody was prepared to see a cheap horror movie that was so well told. Well, this is just to take it back a little bit to uh, what you said about, you know, you were a fan of Mad Magazine growing up. Um, the second you said that uh, the, the ending of both Society and Bride of Reanimator now make complete sense to me because those almost feel like those giant two-page spreads that they would do in the middle <laughs> yeah. of like a, one of their longer form comics and it was just it's filled to the brim with so many amazing details and figures and yeah just I just wanted to say that's that makes complete sense to me like yeah. Society in particular feels like an insane Mad Magazine uh, splash panel. Yeah, it could have been a good one, actually. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, but um, interestingly enough, since I since I um, started being able to, like, actually make movies for a living, I um, I started studying movies because I felt very intimidated when I talked to people who knew a lot about movie history and references and all this kind of stuff and criticism. So I I gave myself my own sort of movie um, kind of education. I you know this is back in the you know when the best quality you could get was laser disc. <laughs> and I've always had from the time I moved to LA I always had a projection television, whatever whatever however good it could be at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, I remember once I, I got this textbook on movie history and just every movie as I read it that was mentioned, I would try to find it and project it. And I know one of you was mentioning your, your favorite um, 
video store. I think it was called Hole in the Wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in LA here, we had Eddie Brandt's. I mean, there was some, a lot of different ones, but Eddie Brandt's was the ultimate in the Valley. Oh, yeah. I uh, actually talked to the um, the guy that uh, currently runs that, um, Eddie Brandt's. Yeah, and it was amazing. And you could find more stuff than you can even find online today because they would record, they would copy stuff themselves and they would have stuff that was not released mm-hmm. that would be illegal to rent it to you. But if yep. you rented something else, they would lend it to you. Yep. And so you could just find anything there. You think that everything's available now online and it just hardly is. It's so much stuff that doesn't have any shelf space even online. And um, But so you could find so many things. And I just started watching every movie that was mentioned, starting with The Silent Age and moving on up until until kind of hitting World War II when it just it, it just got so complicated in the world. There's just so many strains of stuff, and and then I just kind of focused on the um, in the third. In the, you know, I started focusing more on genre stuff. You got to choose something, but so I did that so I would kind of have some reference. I would somebody mention a movie, mm-hmm. I had seen it. I would at least sit through the whole movie, including the credits, and then I could say. You know, I don't know if I liked it or I did or I didn't, or I don't know if I get it, I did or I didn't, but I watched the whole thing. So period. At least I saw it. And then I also did that same thing with criticism. And I tried to, I tried to um, read about early film criticism and how the whole, you know, why everybody puts down genre movies. You know, that really always bugged me because I just didn't, I just feel like what kind of, snooty nonsense is this, you know, that, um, you know, why is that somehow a lesser, um, uh, you know, a lesser type of movie? And I came up, of course, with my own conclusion, which was that, you know, when movies originated, they, there was always two paths. One was the Lumiere brothers and one was um, Melies. And Melies was a, was a guy who had a theater and had magicians on. It was all trickery. And he was, he made movies that were all about uh, what in Europe they call synthetic film, which is just any kind of tricks and commercial uh, yep. kind of um, exploitative or fantastical stuff. And then Lumiere's were doing the window of the world, kind of what real life is. Um, and that there was this whole theory of movies that you should be able to yep. see the process. And that's why you have these movies where you can see the cameraman and the mirror and all this kind of stuff. It was a much more, you know, kind of artistic bent to it. And um, I've just always chosen Melies, you know. I like that kind of stuff. I like the stuff that is fantastical. I love the, um, the um, you know, the... 20s and early 30s when film was almost an architectural medium where building the set was kind of one of the biggest thing about making a movie. You have things like The Last Laugh and, you know, or Metropolis, um, kind of a dreary story to have to sit through. But, you know, or even stuff like Sunrise where the, you know, 
the um, which is a genre movie, by the way. That people maybe don't they haven't most people haven't seen it, but it's about a guy that tries to kill his wife for a floozy on the farm, and, and then she gets away and he runs to, to reconnect with her. But it has some of the most incredible effects, um, and that kind of stuff really attracted me. And stuff like the mm-hmm. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is you know pretty tough to sit through, but it is just amazing or or yeah or the or you go even today after you know a million vampire movies the best one is Nosferatu you know it's just Mm -hmm. it's amazing that you know that stuff back then was so they kind of weren't limited as much as we are today with what a movie should be or how it you know they just the you know I the the expressionist style of of wanting things to look like how you want to feel rather than what is the accurate kind of reproduction of what we see in real life so i went in that you know that's always been my direction and i feel like the horror movies I like, you know, I mean, I think the modern era of horror started with Night of the Living Dead. Um, mm. And the people who made horror in the 70s and 80s, especially during the video era, which is when I came into it, when there was a lot of opportunity because it was wide open, the distribution was wide open. The, um, the you know, People, I think people tend to make the movies that they liked when they were growing up. They make movies that, that um, of the movies that influenced them. And what I, I liked horror. And so I pushed horror. And Stewart was def, is definitely a horror guy. But like Dennis Paoli said, he said, you know, because Dennis was Stewart's oldest friend. And um, he wrote Reanimator, of course. And he said, you know, me and Stuart, we, we go all the way back to high school and we did, we could do any kind of movie, but you wanted to do horror. So that's what we did. And of course, once you have a success, you tend to, Hey, we did a, uh, we did a, a Lovecraft movie. Let's do another. <laughs> and so that's sort of how things work. And I think Stuart constantly wanted to to shock and so he just went as far as he could to just do more blood and more of this and more of that and it it certainly um paid off i think yeah i think both of your instincts uh in a lot of different respects really uh explain i guess why the films so like last so well because you know it's it's so over the top but the performances are really good and really sell it and so you believe it and you invest in the characters. And, and I love your uh, instinct to, um, you know, show what's going on and not just kind of hide behind, oh, well, you know, I mean, it would be so easy to make a Lovecraft adaptation because he, as you mentioned, he didn't really describe things and that was the point. It would be so easy to just be like, well, okay, so the characters are experiencing something scary. You'll never know what until like you see a tail at the end or a tentacle. 
uh, flash across the screen, but I think that would make for a much weaker film because you can dive into this surreal experience with these characters that feel real and it makes it a much stronger set of films. Yeah, I think that I think when you I think when you speak of reanimator, yeah, you kind of have to separate it from what you know what we call a Lovecraft film because it really is so different. There is no tentacles, etc. I think it's I think you kind of have to set it aside as as, as its own kind of genre apart from something like From Beyond or or Dagon, for example, which I think is maybe the best Lovecraft adaptation, you know, most true. Uh, so, and with the sequels to Reanimator, I went back to the well on the first one to get more material from the book. I felt, tried to use everything we hadn't used, but I, but I was basically, I was trying to make another Reanimator movie not make a a Lovecraft movie. It was mm-hmm. to to make a as someone once said that a sequel is usually a celebration of the first movie. And when I did Pride of Reanimator, I actually went back and read um Frankenstein. And I happened to have a copy of Bernie Wrightson's version of Frankenstein, which is the Mary Shelley text, but it's the, but it with Bertie Wrightson's drawings, and I, I had gotten, I had met him because Stewart had brought him in to do um, concept art for From Beyond, and his art was great. But all of a sudden, I was like 20 years older from the first time I read it, and. All of a sudden, it was, I really, really liked the book. It was, of course, kind of archaically written, but I just loved the, the theme of it and that, that whole theme of, um, that would, you know, that, that would be strong enough to have, to have someone like Boris Karloff pull his teeth to hollow his cheeks for the part, you know? You think, wow, this is not just a regular horror movie, uh, but I think that you know the theme of reanim of the of love of Frankenstein, as I understood it, was the uh, and and of course Frankenstein has the Bride of Frankenstein in the book. It's that you know that the the creator rejects the creator. It's like having your parents think you're bad or not good enough or. You know, God has turned from the mess that humanity is. This type of thing, I think, is, you know, is a great theme. And so I kind of use that theme and for Bride of Reanimator, the idea that the, the, um, the creature that the woman that Dan and West made, it's like Dan rejects her. So it has this whole, kind of, you know, poignant feeling at the end that she's she's like a tragic figure. And uh, that's a, that's Frankenstein, I think. And then, of course, a lot of it. I also use some, um, you know, kind of imagery from, from Bride of Frankenstein 
the uh, you know when the the birth of the bride directly taken from that. So there's a you know that's not really Lovecraft, but when you get to From Beyond, which is a which is basically a very short story. In fact, we used up the the um, whole short story before the credit sequence. <laughs> yeah. um, and we just invented a story. And on that one, I was in from the beginning. So I helped write the story um, with Stuart and Dennis. And it was, um, of course, it had a machine. The other, I had thought that either Bride of, uh, I mean, From Beyond or Dreams in the Witch House both appealed to me as as movies to make. And I had already had made an agreement, uh, hired Dennis Paoli to write a version of Shadow of Arinsmith, which I called Dagon because I didn't think the name Shadow of Arinsmith was particularly a good one. Um, and so the, the uh, and we always had trouble getting Shadow of Arinsmith financed, by the way, because it was about fish people. For some reason, it was just this prejudice about that, that it was just going to be funny or something. But um, From Beyond had the advantage. And by that time, I had um, Empire Pictures, um, Charlie Band, I had had, I'd given the rights to sell Reanimator. Of course, that was a big mistake because it took me two years and a whole bunch of money in a lawsuit to get the, get the movie back. Because, of course, Charlie... Um, just wouldn't pay the monies that came in, but before that happened, before that happened, he financed from beyond and dolls. So at that point, he, he was, you know, I didn't have to raise any money, and we, you know, um, and we proposed. We decided, well, should we do Dreams in the Witch House, which I really like because I like the idea of the geometry of this sort of, of um, occult geometry. But um, then the thing about From Beyond was that it was, a, um, it was a machine. And that really kind of adds, you know, make, gives it almost like a little, a bit of a, um, of a sci-fi element to it. And, it um, and I think Stuart liked the idea of the intrepid explorers. It's almost like, a um, fantastic voyage type of, of movie, you know, where you have your, you know, you turn on that machine and now you've gone into another world. And that was a, um, you know, I think that was something that Stuart really related to, that he liked the concept of. And as a matter of fact, one of the movies we never made mm -hmm. that we developed, you know, much later was a movie um, based on a story by Terry Bisson called Necronauts, which is about this blind artist who goes, who goes on an experiment to be, um, you know, into death for a particular purpose. And so you go into the, into the, um, undiscovered country, as they call it. So it's that same kind of feeling that From Beyond has. And luckily with From Beyond, you turn off the machine and then everything's normal. <laughs> You know, but so that was that to me is more Lovecraftian, you know, but um, 
but then the ones that are, and I think um, Dagon is very Lovecraftian. I tried doing another series of Lovecraft stories for Necronomicon, a, um, uh, a, a um, three-part, three short story feature, compilation feature mm -hmm. that I made in the 90s. And some of that was, was certainly more Lovecraftian. Yep. But I wouldn't say that, um, that I mean, Reanimators is the story that Lovecraft had. And I think it's a, it's a really good adaptation. I know, you know, a lot of people think that to have a true adaptation of Lovecraft, you have to almost set it in the same time period and, you know, all this kind of stuff, which I think luckily, um, Stuart and Dennis having spent 10 years living as professional theater writers and actors and directors, they, they knew that that's not the way adaptations work. And um, so fortunate, but if you read the stories closely, you'll really see so many of the elements of the stories kind of um, staged, dramatized so clearly and simply in the, in the reanimator movie. And I, I think that, um, you know, any, you know, the acting, I mean, obviously I didn't have anything to do with that, you know, Stuart. Stewart um, rehearses the actors. He knows how to work with actors. He's, you know, he, you know, I wouldn't say that his movies are particularly cinematic, but they sure are good. And they, I think they sure are. Um, I, I can't think of anybody who does a better job of telling stories with actors than Stewart on screen. I'm glad you mentioned Dagon as well because it was a very formative horror film for me growing up. I caught I caught it on cable, and it was, I think, my first exposure to Lovecraft. And at the time, I didn't know it was Lovecraft until I looked it up afterwards. But I just loved the whole larger than life, deeper mythos aspect of it that really comes out there and you really see it in from beyond where you know the, the barrier to reality uh becomes permeable and we're constantly surrounded by this other world that we're you know snacks for more than anything and i absolutely love that yeah i think that's the um i mean i think that's the really the the key to lovecraft in a way you know, is that idea that that um, there's just a very thin veil between our, you know, what we consider reality and some other kind of horrific um, reality. The, uh, you know, it's that all of our religion and philosophy and science and everything is just a, just a sliver of a, of a veil away from just being trampled and ignored, <laughs> you know. And mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a that's that's horror. That's con that's a that's a cosmic horror. I think you know one of the not that Lovecraft didn't include any kind of religious type stuff because even you know one of my favorite stories, the Dunwich Horror, which uh, which I think has a very disappointing. Um, conclusion um, 
it involves not just the you know the other dimensional gods creatures mm -hmm. but also that you know there's there's chants and kind of occult spells which to me is really not i mean you can't say it's not lovecraftian because lovecraft wrote that you know mm -hmm. um not that you know i mean it's i think it's the idea that people would chant to a god i mean you can make a god out of a rock you know i mean you know if you know when all the pilgrims go to mecca for the the hajj you know or you see yes. there's thousands of people walking around that big square kind of temple you know what's inside that temple it's a meteorite it's a, it's a rock that fell from space you can you know you kind of go wow you can you know it's uh, you know anything can be holy right so you can imagine people chanting to cthulhu and all that stuff and it's a great god and all that i, I think where it gets a little tricky for me is that at the end of um, the Dunwich Horror, they just read us, they just chant a spell up on the hill and the horror goes away. And that just smacks a little bit of not so cosmic, I would say. But the, but in general, I think one of the things that marks Lovecraft for me is that it was sort of, it's kind of a horror that doesn't quite take religion our you know western religion as a as a basis the way something like say dracula does Bram stoker you know it's, mm -hmm. it's all about religion you know um so it's you kind of go well that made lovecraft very modern in a way, i think and he was even doing sci-fi stuff like in the uh the whisper in the dark where you have these metal canisters <laughs> being shot out into space, you know, they're taking, they were taking, taking the sensory organs of a person and putting them into a capsule and then shooting it somewhere else in space. That's, that's pretty pre fifties science fiction, you know, it's so Lovecraft, I think is, um, you know, and people don't ever go into the Lovecraft of the of the dream quest of the great Kadath or the the mm -hmm. shining cities and the great voice. Because he did he did bright stuff too. You know, we just have this this idea that Lovecraft is all about tentacles, <laughs> and they are. Mm -hmm. He was very afraid of or disgusted by or whatever by by cephalopods or or you know, I think you certainly have. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, a lot of his stories are about kind of racial kind of mm -hmm. disintegration that you might have something inside you that is horrible. You know, that, um, certainly um, Shadow Over Innsmouth is that, you know, mm -hmm. that he's got, there's some horror in this town and it turns out it's you, you know. He wraps in the walls same thing you know so i think there's a lot of this fear of what your genetics might bring to you i i always viewed lovecraft as partially a an irrational man trying to rationalize like 
the unknown. You know, it's, it, it always felt like a science, a uh, quote unquote scientific approach to magic, let's say. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it always tied those mystical things, those fantastical things into like such a grounded place. I think that was, that's really like the, the truth of, of Lovecraft's power is that it, it feels real no matter how ridiculous, as you said, with like the tentacles and it, it feels real because he attacks it almost the way a, a philosopher of the time would, you know, like a natural philosopher. Yeah. Well, I think he, he wrote, you know, he wrote in a style that were, where the words were the final product. Today you read, you know, horror, whether it's Anne Rice or Stephen King or whoever, and they're basically writing movies in a way. You know, you almost get the feeling that the they're writing images for you to imagine, scenes for you to imagine. Whereas when you get earlier than that, you know, when you get back, you know, 100, 200 years ago, the words were the final, were the final product. And I think with Lovecraft, he wrote in a kind of a little bit of an archaic style. But I think what's, you know, Lovecraft certainly reflected the, you know, a lot of now, of course, I think he's going to be, there'll be a big backlash to him because, you know, they, because he was, um, you know, kind of racist and sexist. Um, but I think that um, he definitely reflected his times. And mm -hmm. I, I think he wanted to write. He wanted to be a writer. Now, he himself said that he, um, he felt like he had been born in the wrong era. He should have been born a hundred years earlier. He would have been more comfortable. But one thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, he was raised in a, he was raised, I think it was his grandfather, <clears throat> uncle or grandfather, maybe. Um, so when he was young, they had quite a bit of money. So he was raised almost in a, this is the end of the 1800s, right? I think what, what, I forget when he was born, but it's like 18, late 1800s. And so I think until he was like an adolescent, he lived a life of, of rather, you know, sort of a, you know, slightly aristocratic. And um, he did, and he had a lot of um, what he called night terrors. So he had a lot of bad dreams. Um, Scary of winged creatures carrying them off and and such, which I think a lot of that when people have these kinds of because I, I you know these you know all these typical kind of nightmares that you know people have of like a crone holding them down you can't get up because the witch is on top of you know the the real classical ones um, I think that they come about a lot because of sleep apnea. I think that when you mm -hmm. can't, you know, it's very common to, especially if you sleep on your back, you'll, you can start not breathing deep enough and you stop breathing for periods of time. And I think that lack of oxygen leads to a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, um, of kind of night terrors, whether that's, I mean, obviously I, it's total conjecture. But when the, when he ended up not having money and going to live with his aunts, and this is a guy who was brought up by women and he was not very sociable and he wrote a lot. 
but I think, but he did go to conventions for these amateur um, pamphlets, these amateur pamphlets uh, like um, amateur magazines, which was a thing back then. And I liken it a lot to something like creepypasta, pasta website. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think if Lovecraft was Lovecraft today, the way he was in his adolescence, I think he would be an online geek. You know, I think he would be <laughs> writing stuff and collaborating online the way that, um, that, you know, the origins of the Slender Man, I think, comes from creepypasta. But it's obviously much deep you know it's obviously something that is a shared um mm -hmm. a shared kind of image for us that they have kind of developed as a as a online community or mm -hmm. something like the 50 shades of gray that woman wrote that sort of i guess it's uh, i could never get through the book but it's kind of lightweight um kind of S&M or something, um, mm -hmm. but very romantic. Well, she wrote it by getting people to respond to her little writings. It's an online community. Mm -hmm. So I think that this, this kind of, um, these online, not online, but these letter writing, these magazines that were, that were amateur writing. Lovecraft was really involved in that. He wrote a ton of letters. So he was in his little in his house, but he was constantly in touch with like-minded people, and even went to at least one convention up in Massachusetts because that's where he met his um, wife. It's hard to know his, you know, what made him the way he was. They certainly, I certainly read that he hated movies, right? So don't hope, get your hopes up for that. Um, <laughs> He wanted to, he believed, you know, he was from the past, you know, that's what he felt. Yeah. But, and he liked spinning this whole kind of Marvel universe for himself. Yeah, I definitely think uh, you're totally right that if he were writing today, he would be doing collaborative things. Because if you look at some of the entities that he put in the, in the mythos that he wrote about, uh, Haster, for example, comes out of an Ambrose Bierce story in a way, and then he does his own spin on it, but he incorporates things from writers doing similar things of his time. So he, he definitely would have done something similar today when collaboration is even more possible, because that wasn't very common then. Yeah, well, I think that he also was, um, I think that it's not, you know, like you said, nobody writes or creates anything in a vacuum. And I would, I was struck by rereading um, the island of Dr. Moreau um, after having made a bunch of Lovecraft movies and read tons of Lovecraft. And I was really struck by how the second half of that story, when, you know, after Moreau has been killed and and the heroes on, mm -hmm. you know, is hiding out from all the manimals out there. Um, that the way they were described was very much the way Lovecraft described the fish people and, um, you know, the, the Innsmouth denizens, you know, that kind of half animal and half human. 
And I think that's, you know, it's so similar. And there is this in Island of Dr. Moreau, your, the idea is to try to take animals and elevate them to being human. And, um, but the fear is that humans will devolve into being animals, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's, you know, it's, I, it's all seems to, I mean, nobody writes in a vacuum or makes a movie in a vacuum and, and, and Lovecraft is certainly mm -hmm. in a whole group. He was never successful. Um, he wasn't successful like Poe, who, though he never could make much money, was roundly recognized, you know, in his time. But, but, um, I don't think Lovecraft, he just, I don't know, August Durlis and, you know, a few magazines would publish his stuff, but he, he never really, I don't think he ever copyrighted anything himself. He never really made much money at it. And he was um, mm -hmm. always afraid that he was going to go crazy, but we ended up in an, an asylum like his parents did, which you never know what why people are in asylums back then. Sometimes it was just um, gonorrhea or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so it definitely kind of explains the the common element of uh, part of the fear is if a human, a feeble human mind were to experience these things or know these, these truths, uh, our minds wouldn't be able to take it and characters protagonists often end up going mad. And it definitely explains his preoccupation with that theme kind of in the same way that, you know, Stephen King has so many, uh, stories about writers in isolation going mad. Yeah. I'm being drunk. And also, so many of Stephen King's stories are about um, kind of junior high or high school hoodlums being mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And you kind of go, well, I guess a writer, you're, the material for a writer or I say a movie maker, it kind of, once they become professional, they don't have any more stuff. They can only, they can only mine their pre-professional lives, you know? Because you're just um, you, hey, writers just sit around and write all the time. They don't. There's no more. Yeah, there, there's no more uh, ex novel experiences. I, I I feel very guilty of this because I'm a writer. I I picked up podcasting, obviously, which keeps you kind of locked down. And then the other employment that I do is is I'm an editor, like a video editor, and all those things involve you being in a room by yourself for a very yeah. long amount of time. Exactly. Well, that's one of the things I liked when I first started making movies is I, and especially because if you're producing or directing, especially that um, I, there's so many phases to it. It's never just doing the same thing. You know, there's so there's, you know, such a long process and there's so many levels of it, but you're right with the editors, you know, the thing I noticed about editors is they would invest a tremendous, you know, film editors, they'd invest a tremendous amount of money in a chair. <laughs> say, why, do you, why do you have that thousand dollar chair? And I realized, oh, because that's where you spend your life. <laughs> it's funny. I have in another that chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's actually really funny that's you funny. mentioned that because I, I have a good friend here who's a 
in LA who's an editor and I just hung out at his house. He's like, oh yeah, I got a new chair. It's like $600. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yes, that makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world. Well, every job has that aspect to it, doesn't it? And I think maybe that's yeah. why people like the idea of making movies because maybe there's more parts to it. I don't know. Gee, you know, it's yeah. um, work is work. Absolutely. I, I wanted to to spend a little more time, you know, kind of in the, the metaphorical deep end of the pool on some of these themes we've been discussing, but I, I just want to um, uh, ask first if Andrew or, or Michael, if you have any questions that I wouldn't want to lose. Uh, so uh, is there anything that you've been itching to say, folks? Uh, yeah, I was kind of curious. Um, if you recall how many drafts of reanimator the script um you know before they kind of uh settled on the on the one that was taken to screen um there was the original one which is the one that i first saw um but it there weren't that many versions i mean there are versions there's always versions because once you especially once you start getting towards pre-production there gets to be a, every time you change something, you have to put out new pages. But it didn't change. I mean, it was a fairly direct development, which was very common with Stewart. Um, Stewart wasn't, isn't the guy who dealt with um, a lot of possibilities, or he didn't juggle a lot of options in the air. And, you know, at once, he pretty much, when he looked at a, looked at a story, he pretty much very, you know, quickly would come up with a take on it. And from there, he wouldn't, he wouldn't back off that take, it would develop forward, which is not how I do it. I wish I could. I wish I had that capacity. And I don't think most people do. Often the, development process is just agonizingly complicated um, with all, you know, all the options. But with Stewart, he kind of like gets the take and goes for it. So I think you can see it in the actual story, because if you look at Reanimator, I mean, the story is that how it ends up is just predetermined when you hit, when you get to the end and Dan is going to, bring back Meg, you just kind of go, wow, that's how it had to end. You know, it had to go there. Um, he, you know, I, I don't remember there being a ton of versions. I'm sure, certainly there are some, but they didn't change a lot. And a lot of the stories are, a lot of the elements were even there in the very first, in the very first script. Now, of course, the whole half, last half of the movie didn't exist. So that had to be, had to have been come up with. But I remember even like working on the, um, because I was, I was involved with all the story talk, you know, that developed that part of it. I didn't write anything, but I was part of, I would talk with Stuart and Dennis and we um, would talk about the, um, and a lot of it was done by, by letter too. There was no email back then. 
Um, I mean, this was actually, there was no fax machines. We didn't have fax machines when we made, um, when we made reanimator, but the, um, no computers, you know, but the, um, but the, when we talked about scenes, for example, for example, let's see, Hill is going to kill, West is going to kill Hill. And, um, and then he's going to, you know, bring the parts back and, and the cut off his head and his head's going to talk. And as we, as we talk about that stuff, I mean, even back then it was, I remember talking about, well, shoot, how can Hill's head talk because he doesn't have any lungs? And then you go, well, then do we give him lungs? And boy, that doesn't look very good, you know? And then Stuart, I remember Stuart said, well, you know what? In horror movies, heads can talk. And so you go, okay, yeah, that's the, that's, that's the genre. And I think that, but that kind of, it never went back from there, you know? And, um, you know, I was concerned because how can the head stay alive without blood? So it was like, well, you know what? We'll just have them go get some blood out of the refrigerator. And give them blood, you know, so that which makes it really gory. But the idea of him not being able to walk around and bump into walls, um, I'm not even I'd have to look at the script to see if that was really <laughs> if that if there's much description of him bumping into walls. I don't know. I don't know. It could have been what Stewart did on set, because the other thing that we did while while developing the script and also while shooting is we just laughed a lot. You know, we just had, we just thought it was all so fun. It was all so, such a, such a, you know, such a gas, you know, that this was, we just thought everything we were doing was just great. It was just hilarious. <laughs> something like, um, you know, when it was time for, you know, Halsey brings Meg and Hill's there and I, and I do, I remember the conversation. Well, what the hell is he going to do with her? He's just a head. And so then it was, well, we've got to do what heads do. And, you know, I remember a comic book back in the underground comics era called Harold Head. And it was about this, this guy who lost his body. He's just a head, but he's got this incredible powers. And, um, uh, and he could float around. And he could cloud the minds of everybody. And so he had all these beautiful women <laughs> slavish to him. But the only thing he could do was eat them out, you know? And he was very frustrated by that. So it's not like that's a completely original idea. But as Dennis said, when, 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 it, when, um, whoever said, Oh, he, let's, you know, he, you know, he'll just go down on it. And, um, Dennis said, ah, a visual pun, you know, the head giving head. And so, you know, I mean, I don't ever remember it going backwards from that or even kind of coming up with, how's he going to get, how's he going to kill him? You know, how's he going to give him an, you know, give him an overdose and then that'll get west. Intestines will get west. I never remember it being very at all being changing a lot once the ideas were once the ideas were set and I do think that's a lot the way um, Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli 
had evolved to working on scripts. And, you know, like I said, Stuart was not a guy who, you know, he had very specific ideas and didn't really um, feel, you know, didn't care to look at it from a whole lot of different sides. He kind of figured out the story that he had in mind, and then we just went from there. Yeah, I was just curious because I know there was like a deleted um, subplot where Hill was hypnotizing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that mm -hmm. was definitely one because we wanted to somehow justify how Hill could make all those zombies at the end come alive because we needed a big ending. You know, we wanted to have a big a big ending. I've I've always wanted big endings in in the movies, which I've believe it or not, I think I've I've traced back. Where, where, where these, this idea came from for me. And I think one of the things that, I think a very important movie in my youth, when I was just very young, was the, the um, Ten Commandments in the 50s, and, um, which is a horror movie, actually. It's definitely a <laughs> genre movie. Um, you know, you've got sticks turning into snakes, you know, green mist killing people and all this kind of magic. And when, yeah, and so at the very end, you have this huge scene where Moses goes up on the hill to get the, the um, tablets. And down below, they've all started worshiping the golden calf. And they have this huge origin, mammoth origin. And it's done for families. I mean, it was for, this was, there wasn't any R, you know, this was a G-rated movie, Bible yes. movie. And man, I'm telling you that orgy didn't have any, didn't have any um, nudity, but man, it was really too erotic for a kid my age. I had dreams of that, but I think that's kind of, it was huge at the end. And I kind of feel like that's, a lot of the reason why I felt like you should have like the big shunting is kind of like the end of, of it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like if Moses hadn't come back down, you'd have the shunting. You know? But right. it was that yeah. feeling of that, that. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of, it's kind of, it has that erotic, you know, overdone kind of madness, you know, that really, crazed thing and I think at the end of you know when you think of um, the end of you know reanimator it was like well now we got to have a bunch of them we got to have this whole army it was in this you know in the short story too remember Hill had a, brought the army the legions of the dead or something and so of course we decided for budgetary reasons that um, you know that a huge number of of zombies is six <laughs> in, in a low budget movie. You know, as long as you can't count, as long as you can't look at it and tell how many there are without counting, it's a lot. And so that was a, um, you know, that was certainly, you know, the big, you know, the big bash, the big bash ending. And so how was Hill going to tell them what to do? And remember, Hill was always saying where the will was in the brain, which wasn't really in the mm. stories. 
And so we thought that we should, you know, that he would be a mesmerist. He would be able to control them. And we even shot it that way. We even shot the scene where he tells, um, when he goes to West Basement and says, I want to see your notes. So it's now, it's my work now, right? I'm going to be famous. Um, he, if you see the acting of Jeffrey, he's kind of acting really hypnotized there when Hill is telling him to give him the notes and Jeffrey's sort of like acting like he's being controlled by um, Dr. Hill's mesmeric powers. But when it started being edited, um, all that stuff kind of went out the window. I had even thought of making the eyes of the reanimated corpses like glow, a number of things. And, and the scene where Hill is telling Halsey that West is bad and Dan shouldn't be with them and, and Halsey breaks his, his brandy glass. That was a mesmerist scene. So those kinds of things um, changed after the movie was shot, not during it. It was a, it was a, and the idea ultimately, once it started being edited by the unsung Lee Percy, who really put that movie together, um, it was a, um, it kind of got down to, well, you know, all we need is one magical element. We don't want a bunch. All we need is the serum. That's all we have. To do. That's it. And having more elements just complicates it. And I think the great thing about reanimator is if you take out all this, all the reanimated corpses and all the magical stuff, you still have an actual movie amongst the characters. It still works kind of. It's not like it's a movie that, you know, it's the drama part of it stands on its own, on its own two legs. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like, because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, at its core, it's an essence about a guy who gets into trouble because his new roommate is shady. But <laughs> the specifics of how he's shady and the consequences that have, like, that's where all the surreal and 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 experiential shit happens yeah you could almost see a version of it where where it's literally the roommates involved with you know on the underworld right you know? and it all ends up it all ends up going bad i always thought that the story even back when we shot it i thought it was ridiculous that dan that meg wouldn't move in with dan mm -hmm. you know and that's why we put in that line, yeah, my dad, the world's last living Puritan, you know. And I always thought, you know, Meg caused the whole damn problem because she wouldn't move in with him. You know, if she had just moved in with him, he never would have hooked up with him. Wes never would have come into his life. And he would now be, you know, retiring with grandchildren. <laughs> and a great career. I also think one thing that's interesting about this, uh, about Reanimator, and especially uh, about uh, From Beyond, is that it's so interesting that sexuality and sexual drives and desires are such a central thematic part of both films, especially From Beyond, because, you know, Lovecraft was so prudish, but it's the centerpiece of, of From Beyond, and I was just uh, kind of wondering why that was uh, so, you know, highlighted. 
Well, I think that it's also very central. I mean, it's certainly is a big part of Reanimator. I think that's all part of um, sex and violence. You know, I mean, it's. I think horror movies are generally about sex. Um, you know, certainly, you know, uh, you know, ones from eighty years ago. It's more. It's more under the mm-hmm. surface. But ever since you know Hammer started, you know, putting you know, you know. Um, red blood dripping on heaving bosoms um, in the movies, it became apparent. You know, all of a sudden it was, it, you know, became much clearer. And I think it's been a prog, it's been a, it progressively been more um, explicit with, with sex. And um, horror movies have always traded on sex and death. And I mean, there's, they go together. I mean, you can't separate one from the other. Um, they're, you know, it's, you know, it's psychology, religion, sex, death, mm-hmm. you know, that's horror. And I think that you, if you want to, you know, make a, a make a, today, it's harder because I think today with the, you know, this, with a, the, you know, concern about sexism and and uh, the politics of sex it's become very difficult to to be i think sex in the movies it's almost like sex has become pornography you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's okay to have nudity if they go into a strip club and especially if the strippers are you know are kind of in charge um, and you can have any kind of sex act or um, nudity but if you but you can't do that that kind of exploitative the girl taking the shower anymore you know you can't have um, you know I mean think of the opening to um, um, what was it blow blow up no, no the audio one I mean the blow out of blow audio with with um the blow out oh yeah blow yeah, out blow, blow out the opening is like a cheap horror movie mm-hmm. with <laughs> where the camera's kind of the killer's eye or, or it's going across a, a, a girl's dormitory into the shower and the killer comes in and it's it's kind of I mean even Carrie at the beginning you probably couldn't do mm-hmm. today. You know, that kind of explicit, here's the girl's locker room. Um, it was purient, you know, I mean, it was, um, it was, it's exploitative. Um, today, it's not, it, that's not acceptable. I don't think that you could do the, um, I mean, even just the scene where when you have, um, when you first meet Meg and Dan together in bed, and there's a, there's an exploitative, shots of of um barbara's nudity and it's exploitative i don't know that you could do that today i think there would be a sense that that isn't quite because it is exploitative you know and so i think that there's you know if talking about movies from you know 20 or 30 years ago i think there it's kind of like 
looking at Lovecraft's attitudes towards um, towards race or mm-hmm. you know or you know it's a time now of course it's it's um you can't do it today and even now of course you kind of have to even judge you know people from the past for for you know using our standards today but so i don't know how the i think you don't see that kind of in a way, it seems like horror movies have gotten to be much more cautious and much, um, I, I don't know, they seem kind of, I get the feeling almost that there's this cliche I remember in the 80s where they go, people would say, well, I just made a horror movie because I just needed an ent- I needed to make a movie and anybody can do that. You know, the director wouldn't ever want to want to take ownership of the fact that you made a horror movie mm-hmm. just like you don't see i don't know who you know coppola or whoever started by making a lot of people started by making um pornos well they don't talk about that it's not because and horror was always just sort of one step up from porno certainly when i was growing up in terms of is this is this a movie you know you didn't consider porno real movies and horror wasn't quite real movies. But I think that, um, you know, the, I, I'm just, I just don't know that, that you, it seems like now everybody is making horror movies, but they seem to be doing it because it's just their way of making a political or social statement. They're not really just existing for the fun of it, like a Halloween or, you know, Friday the 13th or, hey, Evil Dead, you know. I mean, Night, uh, Return of the Living Dead. I don't think you could make that type mm-hmm. of movie today. I think um, you can't have um, a girl dancing naked on the grave and that just because just you want to just because it's fun to see a naked um, girl on the grave, you know, uh, I think that's not, it's not acceptable today. And I don't know how you get to, you know, what happens mm-hmm. with horror movies then. But on the other hand, you go back a hundred years, they didn't have a lot of nudity or any, and the stuff still worked. Well, I think one of the things that, uh, is interesting and from beyond is that because obviously there's there's a a lot of sexuality and a lot of specifically bdsm-esque imagery etc but it actually works really well conceptually for the film's antagonist because it makes sense that dr Pre- it establishes that dr praetorius is somebody mm-hmm. that wanted control in a malevolent way. So when he gets access to this sort of extra dimensional power source in a way and becomes something else, you get, oh, that guy has unheard of powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that that's and that's not in the right. Lovecraft story at all. That because Lovecraft didn't write he didn't write sex. He didn't write relationships. Uh he was probably very repressed himself, but I think that the you're right that that's a good example 
of how um, Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli, I guess, with him, were able to find a unifying kind of thread to hang the movie on. And that's a thing that's really hard to do. I certainly, in my own, you know, in, you know, developing stuff myself, that's one of the hardest mm -hmm. things for me to do. I've, even after all these years, I, I guess it's a frame of mind or something, but that idea that, that, okay, that why is this guy, um, you know, doing it? Why is he, um, why is Pretorius um, want to make this machine? And then you have this explanation that he wants to see more. He, he wants more, more of his senses and which does go, which is tied in with the, um, with the, you know, sadomasochism. Mm -hmm. So it's, it definitely is a great through line, you know. Remember when he's standing, he says, can you feel it, Crawford? Can you feel it? <laughs> and, and then, of course, that drives Mega or Barbara. She then gets swept up in it and becomes kind of as though the, the funny thing about that, though, is that but because we haven't really gotten yet to the stage, I guess, of sexual liberation or something where it's popular to to demystify, uh, you know, S and M and other kinds of fetishes. There could come a time in ten years when that'll be like, you know, I, I saw that there was this criticism of the new witches, the Raoul Dahl witches movie adaptation, and there were there there was a controversy because there was a deformity of the hands that mm -hmm. the witches had, and then the um, I don't know, the organization that represents people who have deformities and doesn't, don't want, it said, hey, this is wrong. You can't make fun of people because their bodies are deformed. And I mean, you go back to the 20s and, you know, the Lon Chaney movies were all about people not having arms or legs or stuff. And of course, that was coming out of World War One when they were even they would have parades in Paris of people who had lost limbs in the war. And just like the, the advent of penicillin created that kind of, you know, people were coming back from war with, uh, you know, the scars and. Yeah. Yeah. They were able to survive. Yeah. They were, and, they were, and the horror was that somebody had an ugly face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a number. I mean, like freaks is an obvious example from the thirties definitely one of those things that um that there it is kind of the source of that long horror trope or, or even a james bond trope where there's a physical deformity that is conceptually tied into villainy or otherness in different ways mm -hmm. well definitely yeah because there was a feel i think there is a a theory you know 150 years ago that people's physical um, manifestation reflected their moral mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. So if you were ugly, you probably had an ugly soul, you know? And I think that's what this witch's thing, just, you can't really argue against it 
you know. No. But it does take away some of the fun. It just means you've got to come up with other ways to to kind of deal with, um, you know, to, wh- what are you going to do to make it horrific? You know, how do you this... get that sense of horror again? Because a lot of things are are off limits now because of the, you know, because of how society um, evolves. This, this, this segues a little bit into what I, I wanted to know, because when I think about your films and usually the productions you're involved with, the uh, special effect sequences, the makeup effect sequences you have are so stylized and they feel so distinctly of your brand, uh, you know, with like Screaming Mad George. Um, I, I, I want to know. I've always wanted to know where that influence came from because it's like I, you could dump me in the middle of one of your films and I know that I'm watching something you're involved with just based off the special effects. Well, definitely, I that you know that was certainly a place that um, with the Reanimator movie and all the movies I did with Stuart, where we kind of we I, I, we were very very different, totally different. We were coming from such different places. Um, and one thing was that everything Stewart did, he wanted to be able to do on set, on stage. So there's a lot of, you know, every effect you wanted to be able to, to do it on the stage. So for something like, you know, Dr. Hill holding his hand in front of him, you know, all of a sudden his body is like quite a bit wider, <laughs> you know, the, it, there's a there's there's a value to that, which is that you can you cannot um, you you can direct the actors. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of of steps in the way, and that's what. And I, I don't think and Stewart never really lost that, even when he made something like um, Space Truckers or mm-hmm. um, or the Fortress. The for me. I was always into effects, and I I was well, I was always into art. But so was Stuart. You know, Stuart did start by going, to, I think, to art school or something. I mean, he used to draw. Um, I was always I was into art, but my what always what attracted me was the weird stuff. I was always attracted to weird stuff, and especially um, surrealism. Expressionism and surrealism, especially when I was younger, because it's much more, it's much, much more um, kind of a wild concept. Way out, you can really see it. Uh, But later, more expressionism, because it does, it can create a more, uh, more recognizable world. But a lot of even with from beyond um we you know we made the original poster based on a dali painting mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the idea was to be surrealistic and i've always been really attracted to surrealism that whole and i think a lot of you know a ton of i think the creative process anyway is um you know has roots in kind of stream of consciousness, free associative mm-hmm. um, imagery, and surreal surrealism just takes it further. 
You know, it just takes that part of it and pushes it past the point where there has to be, be any kind of um, the only underlying cohesion of the world in a surrealist painting sometimes is the, is the 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 aesthetic of the free associative um, imagery, and I think even and I think it's very much a part of of a lot of creativity in general. I, I mean, look at the early songs of Bob Dylan. I mean, he was just it's free associative. He, just string together images off the top, you know, he just got really good at just tapping into that. And so, and, and the, the aesthetic of it, all of a sudden they start having some kind of poetry to them. So we make our own images for what they, what they mean. Um, but I think that, and for me, that's what I loved. And even when I remember when Nightmare on Elm Street came out, which when I first saw it, I thought it was just great. You know, I, I just loved um, the, you know, the, the surrealist part of it. I loved how it was dreamlike. It was, you know, you could have a tongue come out of the telephone <laughs> in a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And it made sense because it was the nightmare. And so I've always been, I've always liked that better than, you know, a slasher movie. You know, the, the chase, the gory kill, you know, yeah. there's something to it. I mean, it's not that I, I'm against that. It's just, it's not, it, I mean, actually, except for the dentist, I think I never made a movie that had a, had a kill count. I never killed people in my movies as a, like, here's the string of Dylan. I, I was about to mention the dentist too, because even within the dentist, um, the kills in that are the makeup is, it, it carries through that kind of surrealist aspect. Like it, it's, it's, it's a sight, you know, um, the contraptions you came up with. Uh, I, I've always just been, you, you look at the end of Bride of Reanimator when the wall comes down and West's experiments start crawling out and there's just this wonderful menagerie of, of body parts put together that shouldn't be or uh, Faust um, society. Like it's, it's so clearly, it's so you and the people you work with. Because I know you use frequent collaborators, and you know. Yeah, I've I've always I've actually never looked to have a troop. Another mm -hmm. contrast with me and Stuart is that he always wanted to have the troop. He wanted to have the same writer, the same the same actors. He, you know, that's the theater way. You move mm -hmm. from place to place, putting on plays. You get a new play, and you say, okay, who's going to play what role? And I never look. I always thought that. I thought that one of the fun things about making movies, because I tried painting, doing paintings at one time, and I would have an art show and sell some paintings. And it was a very kind of unsatisfying um, activity for me because one, it was really hard to tell what the value of it was. And two, it was, you're alone all the time. <laughs> you're just always doing something by yourself. And in the movies, it meant that if I like somebody's music, I can call them up and say, hey, I'd like you to <laughs> do music for the movie. If I like somebody's art, I can say, hey, do, do me, let's do some, let's do some concept art. Um, you know, it's like you can, you can bring in 
people that, you know, when you think of all the people that you, you know, when you're reading, you're going to the movies, you're going to a concert, you're, you're reading stuff that people write or activities that people do. And a lot of times we see people that we kind of go, gosh, I'd like to know that person, or I'd like to, you know, I really admire that. And I guess if you're, you know, if you're a writer for Forbes magazine, for example, you might go, hey, I want to do an, I, I want to do a piece on this because I find it's very interesting what's going on. And you get to do mm-hmm. it. And in the movies, you get to do that even in another way, in a much, in a, a little more four dimensional way, in that you can just collaborate with people that you have interest in. And so I always thought that that was one of the fun parts of having new people. But the other part of it is that I don't think that any of us have very many ideas. You know, I don't think, I think, I think it's too bad that there's this idea, you know, there's this idea that anybody who directs a movie is all of a sudden an artist, (laughs) or some kind of genius. I find it to be just almost laughable, but it is the way we see things that all of a sudden, if you, you know, you make a movie or some kind of, the director is some kind of a genius and some kind of an artist and you go, I don't know, maybe the guy that, you know, fixes my shoes might at this point be a little bit more of an artist. (laughs) You You know, you don't even have to master a craft. You can be an artist. But I think that most people, when they, I don't know, write a book or do a, you know, write a song or a movie or something, they often, you, they often have some insight into something in the world and either a moral or a political or some kind of insight and so they put that in their song or movie and they feel like they've really discovered some bit of genius and yet it's nothing new it's nothing that is very sophisticated and we've seen this all the time um and i think that someone who's really good at it who's really good at say making a movie or they maybe have one good idea and if they're a genius maybe they got two i don't know generally people you you always go back to the first movie somebody made because you can pretty much see what it was all about right there and after that it's sort of permutations so i always feel like gee i don't have that many ideas but if i can work with other people then it's uh, something new will happen. So there's that part of it too, not just the just the fun and excitement of of collaborating with people, but also the idea that maybe this this saves you from just doing the same old crap over and over. Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely um, uh, add two things. One, uh, I think anyone that starts a podcast is obviously a genius. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I'm saying this as a completely disinterested, neutral third party chronicling fact. No, but uh, seriously though, uh, I would say that um, it's so incredibly impressive what you were able to 
pull off and produce, you know, basically teaching yourself to do it. And also as a, as a director with society, which, which I would love to have you on the show again uh, to chat that film because there's a lot of innovation and there's a lot of high concept mm -hmm. stuff. Like it really, like we were talking about uh, the, the common trope that physical deformity has some relation to personal, you know, villainy, but uh, it really inverts that to say like, oh, these are well-to-do superficially beautiful people and it's hiding this hideous alien evil in a way. And I, I think that's actually really novel and quite, quite cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, society was really, it was kind of really lucky. And there was a good example. Society is really, it all began with Woody Keith, um, who was the, and he and his writing partner um, wrote the script that then we evolved into the movie. But that was a lot of his obsessions that I um, was then able to bring some of my own to. <laughs> and it just happened that it um, was able to um, to kind of become kind of a, a um, weird genre offshoot. You know, I always think of society, it's almost like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or something where it's kind of like, you go, wow, that's really weird, but nobody's ever going to do anything like it again. But the idea of being able to make a new monster is what really thrilled me about it. I just thought when we were doing it, I thought, oh man, this is like, this is like a different take. Because when do you get to make a new monster? They're always the same. They're always another permutation. And that was a real... You know, it was. It, I think it was just lucky that I, that I, um, you know, was able to work with Woody Keith on that, because his, you know, it wasn't what he, you know, it wasn't in any. It wasn't exactly what the original concept was, but it was, but it was certainly the basis, and it was, you know, there was a lot of what I do is look for inspiration anywhere from anybody and then if there's something that i always trust inspiration first i go if there's some great i some great image some great idea then then it's kind of like well how can we make that how can we back engineer that into a movie into the movie you know and so a lot of it is as you can see it's a totally backwards way from that theatrical version that Stuart does where he just goes, I know what this story is and that's what's going to happen. And with me, a lot of times I'm going, wow, I really want to see this and how can I back engineer it? And with, um, with Bride of Reanimator, for example, God, we went through so many different versions of a sequel to Reanimator, so many different takes on it. But the one thing that always stuck with me, the one thing that never changed for me, was that I wanted that creature with the fingers and the eyeball. So yes. that's the one thing that never changed because when I when I imagined that, I just thought I want to see that creature, and how can I have it in a movie? Whatever's going on in this movie, at least 
it's going to make that possible because, you know, I, ju I just want to see that. And so a lot of the stuff I do is a little bit like that. You know, I like the spectacle. One of the early movies that really affected me was The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Mm. And that was, I mean, that's a kid, that's a movie for 12 year olds, mm -hmm. you know. And, but the images in it were just fantastic, you know, because Harryhausen would really make a real unique creature, you know, the, the Cyclops, you know. I, I, I just feel like those things are kind of a lot of what you take away from a movie. Especially when you're younger, you can't follow the story anyway. Right. No, you, nobody could tell you what the story is, but you do remember those those moments, you know. And I think a lot of movies work that way. I, when I, I worked with Dan O'Bannon before I did Society, one of the big um, one of the things I brought to that project was I had been working for almost a year with Dan O'Bannon. We started with Stewart too, but it was on a movie called The Men, which is about a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. So it's this very, I mean, it's ironic and has all the fun of it. And, um, but it has this whole paranoid world to it of this other secret, you know, kind of um, secret world that you don't know about. And when, when at one point, um, although I got the, the project finance, Dan kind of backed out, and I was left having spent months in this world of paranoia and secret stuff. And so when I got the script from um, Winnie Keith and Rick Fry, and it had this whole paranoiac feel, I already knew that world, you know, it already, I already knew, I was already there. I had been spent months with that. So I got it right away. It was never, it was always clear to me what the you know what the tone of the movie would be so it was uh, you know that was it was just it was fortunate and of course then when i met screaming mad george um they it was he was a surrealist artist and so we just when i met him we just spent the afternoon looking at um at simulacrums and and at um at dali books and paintings and just started picking out images from Dali and saying we want to put that in the movie. We need a reason. We need a we need a reason why we're going to be able to do this stuff. And so then it you start it needed the shunting, you know, and it needed a theory behind it and uh you know how the how this weird world could exist. And then on top of it, the fact that it was a class thing anyway, um, it, you know, Beverly Hills and all that, it, you know, I grew up during the, you know, I went to college in the late sixties when politics was in the streets and the whole, you know, there was this whole revolutionary fervor and stuff. And so there was this whole idea that, um, of class struggle, you know, and then, it, to me, it was like, I thought it was a fun joke that, um, that it was kind of a cartoon version of reality. <laughs> you know, it was, it, as a matter of fact, on the British release, I tried to get them to make the tagline a true story. 
<laughs> so I thought, you know, this is what happens. You know, why are we? <laughs> this is a fun way to deal with it. You know, it's a fun way to show it. <laughs> Uh, well, oh, I feel man. like, um, God, I could, <laughs> you've done so many films that I love and I could genuinely talk to you about them all day. Um, would sure, you be willing sure. to I'm be always, on the show I'm always again happy to the, talk the about the future? Stuff. It's not, I just, you know, everything, it's just fun to have, to be able to talk about stuff you've done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine, right? Hey, yeah. Talk about which. Talk, oh great yeah i mean th th <laughs> sure why that's not exactly of course who wants everybody wants to talk about their own <laughs> stuff and quite frankly i i kind of never you know i think as the surrealists say said i mean many different art movements have said this but the surrealists were pretty upfront about it and saying that the, the art is not the object you know it's the doing of it and i think that's true for almost everything in life there's never really a product. The product is very, um, you know, it ages, it does, maybe isn't anything, but the process and the experience of doing it is kind of what's real about it. And I think that, you know, I, you know, I think that, of course, you make a lot of movies. You're going to not have, you're going to have a bunch of them that fail, that aren't any good for one reason or another. Um, and that's, that's a given, you know, of course, if you make huge movies, there's more of a chance that every movie can be saved. The difference is, is that, that it's very few people can make really big movies and really have much influence yeah. on them. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just such a big, such a big machine. Whereas when you get down to the independent and it's they're almost the, you know, to the low budget level, then you start, you start, you're in a place where actually you can have a, um, an influence on, on what is actually shot and made and, you know, what it looks like. So the weaknesses are inherent in that. It's going to, you're going to have, the, the, you know, everybody has stuff that goes bad and it's not for lack of effort. You know, I, I've, the movies that I've made that are um, I'd rather forget are um, are it's not because there was less trying. It's always a big mix of elements, starting from the financing, you know. And so, but every one of them, I don't think I've made a movie where the where I don't find that well, where there isn't something I think is pretty cool about it, even if the movies kind of crappy, doesn't work. And it's never because of lack of effort. And it's, but there's always a lot of ideas there. And I think that's sometimes what's more interesting to me than anything. If the movie can actually work, wow, that's a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a great bonus. But if it doesn't, there's still, you know, there's still great failures. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, Reanimator is a, a good example. Like, I, I mean, I think both it and From Beyond are excellent films, and it must feel good to have. I mean, Reanimator came out in, in what '85, and I was born in '86. So you have a movie that people have really connected. To, you have movies that people have connected to longer than I've been on the planet, which is pretty cool. That's the amazing thing, you know, is that is that 
I mean, I, it's kind of like to think that something that's from, I don't know, what is it, 35 years ago or something. I mean, when I, when I was watching, I think the first time I watched, um, like a universal horror movie was on TV when I was in like middle school and it was 30, 35 years old. I mean, the equivalent mm -hmm. of 35 years old, it's huge. It's such a long time. And for a movie to even have any chance of working after all that time is, you know, it's like things change. So I'm really, I, I'm really just thrilled that there's still a few movies that, that are still, you know, people are still watching and interested in, you know, uh, it, it's just a bonus. What a huge bonus. Your work has been like, I, it's funny when I was asked to do this, I, I, I took a second and looked back at, and you, your work has been a part of my life for the majority of my life. 70 to 80% of my life has been spent enjoying countless hours with what you've made. And it's, and then I, I just introduced my wife to society last night and it still packs that punch, <laughs> you know, well, it's certainly the ending never, never quits. You know? No, it benefits but I mean, a lot. Society benefits a lot from this one, the, the, um, the kind of interest in eighties kind of VHS movies, you know, there's a, yes. a feeling there's an aesthetic of the eighties not just because there was a kind of a, a freedom due to the fact that there were so many entities financing movies back then, but that there was the style, you know, the rubber guys, you know, the, the rubber yep. effects and the mechanical effects and the unabashed, you know, kind of cheap horror. I think the digital has kind of brought us to a place where we're really watching animations you know yes. there, there there's a lack of reality no matter of course in the very high end you know they can make things so real but there's something about puppets mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't quit with you know i know people who can put their hand in a sock and make it come to life right in front of you you know they and i think puppetry and rubber and makeup effects and everything I think there's a there's a sense of look, when people look back at that, there's something there that's kind of been lost yeah, yeah. in the movies, mm -hmm. and they kind of want to kind of re reconnect with it, and and um, I think we'll see more of it. But every time you make a cheap movie, they say, "Oh, we'll just give everything to the digital guys," and you know they even do blood splats. Digital. Yeah, you won't, yeah. won't even throw blood up against the wall. And it's just so yeah. Different. Like like one thing that's uh, really strong about some of these these films in the eighties, like uh, like yours or, or or Carpenter Cronenberg. What makes them land so well today is the pr attention to detail and the love put behind practical effects makes it sell so mm -hmm. much better than if it were a VFX driven modern film well it's it's a tactile nature too right like even regardless of quality of work from a 
a $50 no budget feature to uh, a few million dollars. It's, I think as an audience, there's that connect. That thing was real. It was there. You could touch it. And that changes the effect completely. Yeah, there's something to that. I, I always do. I think the, the great, you know, one of the big changing points in special effects was the, it was John Carpenter's The Thing. And I know that Carpenter was very unhappy with the effects <laughs> because the effects never work. You know, special effects almost never work. And, and producers really hate that. And they don't like things that you can't, you can't control. But by its very, even by the title special effects, it's like if it wasn't something new, it's, it's not a special effect in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, and I think with, uh, with the thing, which arguably, you know, it, it, you know, has some, certainly some maybe character story issues and the effects were considered, they just threw out so many of them. Such a, such a. I mean, I'm just going by the, the, <laughs> the extras I've watched on it, where you mm -hmm. can watch the different, watch the effect scene. You know, when they have the box showing the effect scene being shot while you're watching the movie and stuff, and yes. hear the commentaries and stuff, and you kind of think that um, with the thing, I, I mean, when I saw it, there's a lot of effects come out of the thing. You know, so many of them. Um, in the 80s but when you look at a when you you know when i saw it i just thought wow that movie is that's just incredible and what great effects and then you find out of course just like everything it was everything didn't work it was all screwed up and finally this is what they ended up with which is great you know? <laughs> but it wasn't like it, but the things didn't happen the way they were supposed to yeah and i think that that's uh, you know that movie I mean, I can't imagine how you do a, a digital version of that weird spider creature. <laughs> what is it, the dog spider? How do you do that digitally? Where would you, I mean, you know, I've done one digital creature. Um, I did a giant sea scorpion. And I saw the, I, I saw the reality of why these digital creatures are so kind of so un, effective and I realized it was because so many people work on different layers of a digital scene like somebody does the set somebody comes in somebody does an animatic somebody does a and makes the set somebody does the lighting somebody does the skin somebody that you know all these different layers come in and every time you make a choice and you approve something you can't go back you know, because it's they budgeted so much time at these different computer um, terminals. And so you're making choices very, very early that can't be changed. Whereas when you're doing a puppet, you can just shoot it again. You know, you just shoot it from this angle, you know, put in a little smoke. Right. <laughs> Some flashing. Or like you light. have uh, the, 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 the story for Jaws where it, they never really got it to work well, so they adapted by making it mostly invisible and under the surface, and you'd see it fleetingly until the end, which made it a much better movie. 
It was a much better movie. It still looks pretty goofy there when the head That's comes true. up. But I wouldn't want to see them replace. <laughs> but I wouldn't want to see them replace it with yeah, a that's uh, Jaws. Head. Although on From Beyond, I always thought I would love to do a George Lucas on that movie when the final creature is flying down the down the staircase. After mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. blue screen, and it's really not good. <laughs> it's it part of the charm. So great. Well, I know it'd be so great to like have it look. Good. have it looked the way that it should have but i i know that 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 um there is that you know that drive to to try to fix the stuff that didn't work i think the the you know you could do it by reshooting it and use the use the puppet but just mm-hmm. use um you know the thing is is digitally you can get rid of any kind of rods mm-hmm. or any kind of people manipulate. I mean, there's so much you can do yes. digitally, but not necessarily create the character right. itself. Um, oh yeah. Uh, before I, I forget, I, I do remember a story because we're talking about uh, the how they how they make the uh, how they make the film behind the scenes stuff. I remember, Mike. Didn't you have something that you wanted to add about? Uh, you know. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so it was um, really cool because um, I bought a um, film prop from Slither, which uh, is actually named after you. It's the Usna 3000. And I don't know if you remember um, me sending you that picture from the, the James Gunn movie. I don't remember that. Okay, yeah, so it was it was really cool. It was, um, I'll have to email it to you, but um, yeah, it was uh, the very first prop in the movie of Slither is named after you, which I, I thought was such an, an awesome tribute. Um, so well, that, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that because I was always a little irked at James Gunn for doing all that society stuff in Slither and not giving it a shout out in the credits so i'm uh, glad that there was a shout out on the on the set yeah i mean you can um yeah like i said you I'll, can clearly see it yeah and i'll i'll, I'll definitely send resend you that picture but um yeah i thought that was such a cool nod because like you said um clearly the the visuals were yes you know borrowed yes. or ripped off or however you want to you know from society but um well, you know what they say, the, the, the language of film is film. Not, I don't know if we can even call it film anymore. The language of movies is movies. So yeah. what are you going <laughs> to, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, not I, like, it's not like writing where you can, where you can actually see a sequence of words, you know? And in film, there are, it's always being um, referenced too. I mean, when you watch, especially, you know, French movies or European movies that where they'll mm-hmm. they'll reference they'll do scenes or shots straight out of other movies as a what they, they call it a quote or quoting mm-hmm. the movie you know like in what was the, the one the professional remember the professional um, by Luc Besson and when he's putting the axe into the door and it's shot exactly like The Shining mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. That's that's a quote, you know, it's a film quote. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I know that Tarantino does it all the time. Like you, 
all of many of his, I won't say all, many of his favorite scenes. You can be like, oh, I saw that one in, uh, in Weekend, and I saw <laughs> yeah. this one in Sergio Leone. Like, you, you can definitely, like, point out the direct callbacks. Yeah, well, I, I you know, I spent a couple years working with um, Christoph Gans. I don't know if you know Christoph Gans. And, yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, we, especially on Crying Freeman, um, we, um, he was the only director that I've ever produced. And I produced, I, I produced a lot of directors. There's a lot of first timers. Um, and I produced him the first, first, first two movies. And he was the only guy that after a few days, most directors after a few days, of shooting, I can pretty much predict what their shot list is going to be. You know, you can, once they get in, get into it, they basically fall back on the same way of handling a scene. And with Christoph, I could never predict his, his shot list it, it, and it, how his, where his storyboards were coming <laughs> from. And I realized it's because every scene he did was taken from another movie. And I didn't have his, I just didn't have his encyclopedic knowledge of movies. You know, I just didn't, I didn't know him. And so, but he, you know, I really, I certainly, he was certainly just a great guy to, to, to work with. I learned a a lot from him, um, in terms of, you know, stretching, stretching the formal aspects of movies, you know, of, getting to what being cinematic you know he's he was especially when he started out he was much less now he's kind of very he just overdoes everything <laughs> he just because he's got so much money you know he's got so much mm-hmm. money and he just he just does too much of everything but on crying freeman where we would we had a lot of money but we were really stressed with it you know trying to get the shots and and it was it was really fun to see his um you know his approach to to the you know to using anything he could to make the movie and I think that was a big influence on me because the first thing I did after um crying Freeman is I did the dentist <laughs> and in the dentist I I actually handled it very much, very differently than I, than I had, you know, before that. I really, um, I did reference a lot of other movies, especially for the killings. I just did Hitchcock. I just took scenes out of Hitchcock and redid them for the, for the dentist. And I never would have done that before, you know, and I never would have been so aware. I think with the dentist, I, I mean, it was so cheap. And I couldn't even afford a storyboard artist or anything. And we didn't even have the script finished when we were location scouting while we were just getting ready to shoot. So it was really a, a kind of a, a very, very few resources production. And it, and it was a kind of a, a, a kill count movie. But so each killing had to be very you know had to have some punch and i really wasn't used to doing that 
And so I went to the Hitchcock. And then the other thing I did, I think which is very inspired by Christoph Gans, is I made sure that I that I had at least I had to draw my own storyboards, but I made sure that the first shot and the last shot of every sequence or every scene that I had that boarded and I knew how the cut was going to go from one scene to the other. And even if the middle wasn't completely clear. And what I, and what I would actually do shooting in the dentist, because you, when you're up against the wall with time, you can really paint yourself into a corner, um, as they always say on, on movie sets that, you know, in the morning, you're doing Gone with the Wind, and in the afternoon, you're doing the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> like you start, you start with grand ideas, and as the day collapses around you, at the end, you're just trying to survive. Right. You know, you're just shoot, run, shoot, run, shoot. Do, do it in one take, no rehearsal. You know, and but so with the dentist, what I being already up against that wall, knowing it, what I did is I would just I would shoot. I'd make sure I shot the first shot of the of the scene and the last shot before I did the middle. So then if you're rushing, when you're rushing it, you're rushing the middle, not the, you know, not the beginning and the end. And it it helped a lot, you know. But I think that was directly that that was direct directly from, from Christoph. I think I got I got a lot from him. Crying Freeman is one of the most underappreciated action films I've ever seen. It's because it's a, never been released in North America. That's the oh, problem. Never it's got so released. good. Yeah, on anything, not on DVD, not on VHS, not on the theaters, and it had to do with a with a fight. It's by the producer Sammy. Well, my part, the financial producer Sammy Hadida, French. As the, company Metropolitan Films in France um, that are a distributor there. And there was some hassle he had with both the the um, British Columbia Actors Guild and with the foreign sales guy in that if it ever got released in North America, he would have to pay all this money to him. And it's not that he didn't have the money to pay it or anything. It's just that he was angry at him. And he, it was just a kind of like, a, he just didn't want, you know, it was just a personal peak. And so he said, you know, I'll just pay the, I'm just going to pay the, the interest on this to the bank every year. I don't care. Because he made oh. the movie to, to promote the career of Christoph Gans. And, mm-hmm. it, and it was released in everywhere else in the world. And in France, it made Christophe an instant kind of French director. And I even I went there for the for the release and sat with the with the crew from the from the from the company at a restaurant, a long table, and up above across the street in Paris was a was the um, they were the where they were getting the calls about the box office like you know how many how many um tickets were sold all around france and they would yell them down and everybody would have a drink and you know and so it was like a real of course i was the only guy that didn't speak french there everybody else was french 
but I still had a good time. But in the daytime, when it was opening, that first day when it was opening, I was with Christoph on the Champs-Élysées, and and you know these people came up to him; they recognized him. He was the great director. It was his first feature, and I just thought, man, when I you know, and when I want to be reincarnated as a French director, <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, it's, uh, I, it's the, 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 the admiration they have there for kind of writers and, you know, artists of any kind. It's just incredible. And here it's all about how much money it made, you know, it's how, what box office did it do? Like, you know, when Stuart, when Stuart Gordon died, they covered it in Variety and the Times and all that. Well, in Variety, when they covered Stuart's death, you'd think, I think he was an important filmmaker, you know? Yeah. And really surprised. I mean, his talent is was more than most of the big-time directors, I think. I mean, I I'm absolutely agree. believe that. But when, and I think he did some great stuff. And the 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 obit they did in Variety was all about that he had co-written Honey I Shrunk the Kids, mm-hmm. and that's because that's a big that's had big box office. Yeah, uh, you know, and all the rest of it doesn't matter. That's that's the world of Hollywood. <laughs> for the record, I, I wrote an uh, wrote up an obituary for him in Forbes, and I definitely covered all the rest of it. Yeah, well, I think even I think the New York Times even did a nice bit. Which I think what happened with his obituaries is they went back to his theater career. You know, the Times gave a lot of credit in Chicago, of course, to his theater career because it was a real career. And I, I guess mm-hmm. you know that's that New York, Chicago. They have real theater scene over there. Their theater is is considered you know, something very important. In LA, it's all, what was the biggest grossing movie you ever did? And um, I think what none of them really get into is the the effect he had as a, I guess as a genre filmmaker, you know, because there's no way to gauge it. You know, they can't, you know, you, you can't, how do you, how do you quantify the fact that, you know, I, I, uh, you know, there's merchandising done on Reanimator now, and I keep, I've been getting boxes of samples of these incredible, like, Reanimator jackets and wallets, you know, all these things, and you go, this movie is really old. How do you quantify that? You know, how do you quantify that there's, you know, for an obituary, how do you quantify someone's work and say, God, he made a movie that it's still, people still are connecting with. You really, all they can do is go, oh, this is the, you know, this is what the box office was. That was mm-hmm. how important it was. Or did you earn, did you win an Emmy or, uh, or an Oscar? Yeah. You know, yeah, I think that's actually the, the perfect, uh, literally the perfect note to end on. Um, uh, I, I do want to give uh, all of you. Uh, uh, for, well, first, I want to say thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I will um, tr- immediately try and lock down a, a time in the future to to talk about 
um, some more of your work because it was it was straight up fascinating. Uh, so thank you. And um, and for for all of you, kind of, uh, is there anything you have going on that you would uh, like to pitch to the audience uh, or point the audience towards? Uh, sure, I have a book on Amazon that's uh, the ultimate guide to strange cinema, and society's in there, of course. So um, check that one out, and then. Um, you know, you can always check me out on Twitter at Strange Cinema 65. Um, and, you know, as um, Jeff said in the intro, I, I have a video blog uh, called The Video Attic. And um, I always uh, post new uh, reviews. Uh, I do a lot of uh, home video releases because, uh, you know, I think supporting physical media is so super important right now. Um, so that's all I have to plug so far. That's perfect. <laughs> what about you, uh, Andrew? Uh, yeah, you can catch me on Twitter at dark underscore crow, where you can also catch me on Twitch most nights spewing nonsense and playing games and um, I also have a uh, podcast called The Rotating Chair. Uh, you can find us on YouTube Podbean um, under The Rotating Chair. We uh, primarily talk genre, horror genre, and um, we interview independent filmmakers, writers, producers, actors. Um, it's a big love fest. And uh, yeah, uh, pretty much any time you want to look for me, dark underscore crow, you'll, you'll find Perfect. me. And uh, Brian, do you have anything going on at the moment? Well, I, you know, I, I always, always um, plugging away, but I should just say that I actually do have a, a novel coming out at Crossroads awesome. Press called The Pope. And it's about a um, seminary dropout who dresses up like the Pope and kills pedophile priests. So <laughs> that's something you should look out for. <laughs> Wow. I'm so glad you that pitched is, that. <laughs> the greatest so. plot synopsis I've ever heard. Okay, so this has to be a movie. <laughs> right. Well, it was actually a script that I wrote with John Penny, who, who made, who wrote, who wrote Return of the Living Dead 3. Um, and we wrote it as a script. And then we thought, well, let's make a comic book. And so we did one, we did, we did, finished one one um one um issue it's four issues okay. for a, for a graphic novel at which we it hasn't been uh, hasn't been published because we haven't done that we didn't spring for the others and then i thought well i'll just write a novel about it. <laughs> because you know you already have the whole story but of course a novel takes you in a whole different yeah. direction it, mm -hmm. everything changes from movie to comic book, to novel, and the novel starts getting into the whole worlds of fake history, Dan Brown style. Mm -hmm. you know? But uh, anyway, it was it was fun, and I just would like to thank you for letting me do the deep dive Absolutely. with you. And uh, now I'm going to come up and decompress. Fair enough, and it has been uh, an honor and a pleasure, sir. So thank you so much for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, it was awesome talking to you.
Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of recorded human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. Thank <laughs> you.